the Australian public, people are very surprised to hear law framed as a public health tool. There's a certain cultural aversion to the law and it's rarely seen as something that can produce a social good. Hi, this is Prevention Works, a series of conversations all about the prevention of chronic disease. I'm Gretchen Miller and I'm thoroughly enjoying meeting some of Australia's top researchers to talk about their work with the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. The Prevention Centre brings together researchers and policymakers who are working to find new ways to prevent Australia's greatest health challenge, lifestyle-related chronic disease. I'm Janine Mohunthan. I'm a research fellow in health economics and law at the George Institute for Global Health and a PhD candidate with the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. Janine is working to look at shortfalls in existing public health law, surveying where it's working and where it isn't. And in this episode, we're talking about the way the law can and does intersect with population health, as well as individuals' health, how it's brought about changes we all now accept as given, and how we can better use the law to improve our health in the future. Out on the street, we tend to think of the law as a bit of a blunt instrument. You know, law tends to mean doing something wrong and going to court, and it's combative. But of course, the law is a much finer implement than that. And I'm wondering how the use of LAW law brought about some of the behaviours we take for granted. Actually, in Australia, we've had a strong and a fruitful history of implementing effective public health laws. Australia's gun control system, minimum ages of purchase for alcohol and tobacco, pool fencing, child restraint laws that have saved lives, prevented injury and are responsible for our standard of living here in Australia. You've written that there's a failure of policy to address national health. These are quite strong words. What's falling between the cracks? I think the first thing to note is we don't have a culture of evaluating public policy on a very simple level. We know that public policy and and public health law is failing us in Australia because despite our relative wealth, we do have an epidemic of chronic disease. And part of the reason for that is that uh, we have policies that often come about very quickly without the ideal evidence base behind them. Sometimes this is because of industry and lobbying influence, not being able to implement policies that we know work, that a World Health Organisation best buy interventions like controls on the availability of alcohol. And at other times, policymakers and researchers aren't sort of co-producing research questions to answer and very expeditiously produce evidence about how public health laws are working, if they're not working, why they're not working, what the unintended consequences are. And so that's what I really mean by saying that public policy is failing us. But what is interesting is that quite a number of the public health laws that you've mentioned have become quite successful. I guess they're the ones that we get to hear about. Are there others that are less so? They're easily measurable. Uh, Like smoking rates. But I suppose with public health law program, a point that we'd like to make is that there are so many other areas where it's completely ambiguous as to how laws are working or if they're working. So you've done some real world research on local governments and alcohol, but 
Before we go there, let's quickly look at the background of some alcohol laws we've seen implemented in, say, the last 30 years. Sure. The interesting thing with alcohol is that alcohol has been around forever and a day, but the world's changed, Uh, societies have changed. So with alcohol in Australia, for example, we've had legal interventions like a minimum age of purchase. We have a licensing system, an ever-evolving licensing system. Uh, So random breath testing and mobile RBTs are are very well known in Australia for deterring people from drinking and driving. Um, That's one of our most well-known interventions, I think, in Australia. Another less well-known intervention is states like Victoria banning powdered alcohol preemptively. So that's what I mean when I say that industries are evolving to provide new products all the time and, and subsequently our laws need to as living systems need to respond to that to protect public health. Some of the legal challenges to public health problems are actually the community. It comes from that level. Tell me a little bit about the community of Shoalhaven. Yeah, so it's a southeastern coastal local government area in New South Wales. Within Shoalhaven, there is the community of East Nowra, and that's a community that we came across in one of our studies where having faced some of the highest rates of domestic violence in the state, harmful alcohol use, child neglect and abuse, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So the community of East Nowra in Shoalhaven already had a high density of liquor outlets in that community. And so they got together, uh, social services, police departments, recovering addicts and other individuals in the community got together and decided they didn't want a new liquor outlet, which is one that was proposed. It was a a 1,500 square metre liquor outlet purportedly cost around $3 million to build. And so fearing for a compromise in the health and wellbeing of and safety of that community, they got together and opposed that liquor outlet, working with their local government, a Shoalhaven City Council, to reject the Dan Murphy's proposal. This is really interesting because you've got a community effectively in strife. It was already vulnerable from the effects of both poverty and alcohol. And I imagine some of the stakeholders wouldn't have been on very friendly terms. You know, the community itself with police and social services aren't always on each other's sides and yet they work together. How did they do that? I think when it comes to the health of communities, particularly uh, children and young people, you and I and most Australians are willing to work together with other stakeholders to achieve that purpose. And that's exactly what we saw in this community that really cared for the, the health and well-being of all citizens and didn't want their current standard of living to become worse ultimately unsuccessful, of course. The outcome wasn't good and they didn't win because by law, the courts can't take into account social impacts, only whether there's commercial competition. It is difficult for public health arguments to be successful and that is because there isn't explicit room made for in legislation to consider health impacts on communities. There are limited provisions for social impact, but to much of the frustration of addiction clinicians and other health professionals, it is very ambiguous as to what social impact means, considering it is very rarely a successful argument. But the evidence is stark, isn't it, that there's a direct correlation between the proximity of a bottle shop and people's health. And if we were to illustrate that on a map, What would it look like? 
Sure. So, I mean, it, it's important to make the point that every community is different, uh, but there is a growing amount of evidence that shows higher density communities. And when I say higher density, I mean liquor outlets and, and alcohol venues. There is poorer health. And so one of the studies that has come out uh, that was produced by the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre and an academic called Hannah Badland showed that people who do not have a liquor outlet within 800 metres of their home say that their health is better than those that do. So studies like that, and, and it's an increasing area of interest with alcohol policy experts, growing evidence suggests that where there is a higher alcohol availability, people's health is poorer. And yet in low socioeconomic areas are more likely to have higher rates of liquor outlets, despite the disproportionate rate of chronic disease that they often experience. So this is where public health law could really make a change? We definitely think so. And there's a plethora of examples within Australia and outside of Australia. Limits on alcohol availability have been advocated for at the highest levels at the United Nations by the World Health Organisation time and time again as a best buy effective and cost-effective intervention. You're with Prevention Works, a podcast of the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre with Jan Mahunthan, Research Fellow at the George Institute for Global Health. And stay with us as we discuss the progression of the way Australians react to the imposition of laws that are good for public health. We can be rather resistant to begin with. I have to say that we've seen research come out looking at a spike in aversion to public health law and nanny state arguments come up as soon as public health law is implemented. Years down the track, surveys have shown that people are very accepting of those laws, particularly where they see health and social outcomes improved. Another thing to remember is that every time uh, we implement public health laws, a sugar tax or uh, greater restrictions on alcohol availability, industries will respond quite often negatively to restrictions on their ability to do business and, and profit making. And we see the same sorts of nanny state arguments come out and also arguments about encouraging competition and employment. You mentioned bike helmets. That's a really interesting one. Bike helmet legislation came in between 1990 and 1992. And since then, many advocates have argued that bike helmets have saved uh, people from obtaining brain injuries. Adults have become a role model for children. Professor Rebecca Ivers, who is the Director of Injury at the George, makes the argument that children will only wear helmets if they see adults wearing helmets. On the flip side, anti-helmet legislation advocates make the argument that in Europe, in some countries in Europe, they don't have these restrictions. And then there are more people riding. Sure, sure. I guess, importantly, in Australia, we don't know whether more people would ride if helmet legislation were to be repealed. It's been an argument made, but there hasn't been any convincing evidence that bike helmet legislation reduced the amount of people that would get on their bike. And another thing to consider is that when people are asked what the barriers are to getting on their bike as a mode of transport and leisure, 
helmet use falls way below infrastructure for cycling. So that's a huge difference between some European cities and Australia where we don't have a very advanced, sophisticated cycling network and we're all a little bit scared to get on the road, particularly on the busy roads. And so it's important to put all these factors in perspective when we think about arguments for and against bike helmet legislation. Let's talk a little bit about the way laws can be different according to communities. Tell me about what happened in the Northern Territory with the mandatory treatment laws. And it sounds like those laws should have been quite effective and quite good. The idea being that if you keep getting apprehended for drunken behaviour, you get three months treatment and then, you know, you're sort of rehabilitated and you're back on the street. What went wrong with that law and what's happened to it? Well, as communities have said time and time again, culture needs to be infused with any kind of healthcare when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So you need to take culture into account. Absolutely. And cultural acceptability as well. It's quite important that healthcare is led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So, I I mean, the, the Mandatory Treatment Act allowed for legally sanctioned deprivation of liberty, taking away a person's Uh, choice to be rehabilitated. So I think the problem with that and a lot of doctors and the medical community, health professionals came out rejecting the Mandatory Treatment Act because of this, because it was providing treatment under situations where uh, vulnerable individuals uh, were being detained. And it's important to recognise that many would argue we would never accept those kinds of provisions in in Sydney, uh, in other metropolitan areas but it was implemented in a community that had little say over it, the way that it was implemented as well. Subsequently, it didn't work and it was repealed. And I think a lot of the frustration from communities, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, is that we have this sort of haphazard chopping and changing of Aboriginal policy. Often recommendations by the community aren't taken into account. And then you have laws like the MTA, the Mandatory Treatment Act, that are implemented and subsequently repealed, the community is no better off than it was before. So not only the community, but in fact, people with experience, the service providers also rejected this law. So it was really all the expert voices and the community voices didn't want it. And in the end, it failed. That's exactly right. So to bring law into public health in a less ad hoc and a more effective way, what do you feel needs to happen? I think there's a number of things that need to happen. I think we need genuine investments into public health law research. It needs to be somebody's core business to be evaluating public health laws so we know if they work, where they work, what the unintended consequences are. And so that evidence can then go and inform laws to make them better, more robust and future-proof, if you like. I think another thing that needs to happen is that people trained in the law and legal research need to be working with public health people. Public health research is best done when it's multidisciplinary. I think my PhD and a lot of other public health law research happening in our program has shown that those that are legally trained and public health professionals can work together very effectively, produce meaningful results that have the potential to improve the health of Australians. I think another thing that needs to happen is that policymakers and researchers need to 
work together to co-produce research questions and co-produce evidence. So what I mean by that is that policy and law is not made in isolation to evidence. Part of the reason that there sometimes isn't a sufficient evidence base for lawmaking is that public health researchers work sometimes in isolation from policy making. So what we need to do is both be generating public health law research, quality, rigorous public health law research, and foster a culture of policymakers engaging with that evidence. So using language that policymakers understand, and part of that will be finding methods that allow us to expeditiously produce evidence and inform law reform which can be a very tight window. So it's a difficult but an ambitious goal, but I think very possible. That takes time, that research. So what can be done concurrently as well to get some of those essential laws into our public health system? So I think on a very basic level, what's important to Australian society is important to governments. So when Australians decide and communities decide that public health law is important, particularly effective, acceptable public health law, it will become important to policymakers. We will see investments in public health law research and we will see a greater engagement with high quality, rigorous public health law research. Jan Mahunthan, thanks so much for introducing us to your work. All the best for getting that PhD finished and I look forward to hearing what happens next. Thank you so much for having me. Jan Mahunthan, speaking with me, Gretchen Miller, for Prevention Works, a podcast of the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. And if you'd like to hear more, head to our website, preventioncentre.org.au. Do like us on iTunes, leave us a review. And let your friends and colleagues know about Prevention Works. See you next time.